Hi, this is Arielle Jack, Student Ministries Director here at New Life Church. Thank you for joining our podcast today. I pray the following presentation encourages, challenges, and inspires you to take the next step in your faith journey. Enjoy the message. So it is my joy and pleasure to introduce uh, somebody who has gone through the ringer in the last couple of years. Um, Pastor Nick has been the superintendent of the Southern New England Ministry Network for as long as the pandemic has existed. <laughs> so there was really no precedent in knowing how to navigate this. Um, and he has just done a phenomenal job. And uh, I'm so glad that his family could be here today. Thank you for being here. And uh, so I would like you to give a warm new life welcome to Reverend Nick Fatato. How's that? All right. All right, first rules and regulations. So to pick up, do I have to stay on the rug? Is that all right? Or you can chase me anywhere. All right, man. I'm going to test you on that. Good morning, everyone. I, um, it's really, really delightful to be here. Um, as Dave said, I work with the Southern New England Ministry Network. And let me tell you what that is in friendly terms. We're a family of churches, about 190 churches that you're a part of. And I'm grateful for that. And we're a community of leaders, about 550 leaders in southern New England, and your pastor is a part of that. And we journey together on this little piece of ground called southern New England uh, in the little slice of the kingdom of God called the Assemblies of God, and we desire to see the name of Jesus lifted up. So uh, I say I have a one-sentence job description. It's this that I steward the call of God on men and women's life in southern New England. So I get up every day, and that's what I'm thinking about. How do we care for those who lead in this region? So, and then there's moments when I get to meet the friends of my friends, and that's what this morning feels like to me. Your pastors, I would count him as a friend. I always enjoy my conversations with him. Uh, you know, there's people that sometimes when you're with them, when you leave, it's like they suck the life out of you. And then there's people that when you're with them, you leave and you feel like energy is with you or you know more about Jesus and how he cares and moves. When I'm with Dave, uh, I find that I'm encouraged uh, and I know more about Jesus. So I'm grateful for you. And I've, I've tracked with him, you know, through this journey a bit of pastoring. And, uh, uh, you know, you have one of the, one of the very best leaders uh, in our network. And so you, in case you didn't know that, uh, I'm telling you that because uh, that's what I get to do. I get to work with leaders. And so, so grateful, so grateful for the work uh, that he does here. And, hey, I like the place. Nice. Uh, good work. Um, taking over the mall, all the different rooms, keep it going. Uh, you know, you can't help, and I'm sure others have said this, you know, you walk in and when we read the Gospels, we read that people gathered at key places, and uh, they were usually marketplaces or water wells. Uh, it was where everyone gathered, and I think our current marketplace and our current water wells are malls, and so it's just so, so encouraging uh, to be here. So that's really all I have to say. Have a nice one. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I've, been on a, I've been on a journey for several years 
And it started um, a few years ago. We were living in downtown Boston, and I was taking a walk in the evening. And, and like what happens in busy urban settings, um, you know, kids ex display their artwork on the sidewalk, and they use gigantic pieces of chalk to draw on the sidewalk. And this particular uh, evening, I'm walking along, and I see that, I'm guessing a child had, had drawn a line across uh, the sidewalk and, and wrote the words, start. And then as I, I walked down the sidewalk, I got to um, another line, and misspelled <laughs> was the word finish. And as I stood by that, that spot, on the sidewalk. I just stood there for a moment. And a couple thoughts ran through my mind. The first was, why did that child choose to draw that line right there? Why not down there? Or why not closer there? And maybe as a child playing on a sidewalk, he didn't even, or she didn't even give it a second thought. Just we're going to mark out a start and a finish, and we're going to race, whether it was big wheels or it was running or whatever. And then as I stood by that sign, I began to think about so much of the imagery of the New Testament for those of us who are Christ followers uses image of running a race. But this particular race that you and I run has kind of the same characteristic that I observed that evening in downtown Boston. The randomness of where that child draws the line. And I thought about the race you and I run. We run a race, and God holds this big piece of chalk, and he draws the line wherever he chooses. Now, I don't know about you, but I could probably guess that you are like me in that you're not always happy where God chooses to draw the line. Why? Why now? And I, you know, I, uh, I have been in ministry a long time. I've performed a lot of funerals. And I don't know that I've ever had someone say, I'm so glad God drew the line there. So the issue for you and I is not so much why did God draw the line there? It's how do we run the race? And because we don't know where he'll draw the line, how we live today really matters. And so as I stood on the sidewalk that evening, I was reminded of a of a verse, and this is, I would categorize this, I usually would call this my, my tattoo verse. I don't have a tattoo, I'm not opposed to tattoos, but if I did have a tattoo, it would be this verse, and it's Acts 13, 36, and I think we have it. Do we have it, or we're going to go for it? No? Yeah? No? No? All right, so you're going to have to trust me, but you can also look it up. It says this, when David had completed God's purpose... In his own generation, then he fell asleep and was buried. Now, I don't know why it's worded quite like that. 
because it sounds to me like an, an old man took a nap and they buried him. But the truth is, when David had completed God's purpose in his generation, then he died. Now, I discovered that verse when I was about 20 years old. And it so captured my heart that um, I began to think about how I ordered my life. You see, here's what I know about you. You say, well, how would you know that about me? Because you're human. And here's what I know. And if you're a Christ follower, I know it even more. We don't want to live our life between wherever those lines are and just use up oxygen and die. We want our life to matter. We want to live for a purpose. And that's different for all of us. And if you're here this morning and you know, you're not a Christ follower, that's great. I'm glad you're here. Maybe you're here because somebody tricked you. They said, if you go to church, I'll take you out to lunch. Either way, I'm glad you're here. And I hope that in these moments, you know, through the worship and, and the engagement with the community of faith and even the, you know, the couple of thoughts that I share, that you'll see a picture of, a picture of Jesus. But since that verse is so important to me, I'll tell you this. If I die tomorrow, if I die 20 years from now, and Pastor Dave conducts my funeral, I'm going to tell him right now what I want him to say, okay? So take note. He's going to say this, I hope. Nick Furtado has completed God's purpose in his generation. Now he's dead. Have a nice day. I mean, if you want to toss a couple other things, it's all right. But long as you do that, I'm honestly, I'm good with that. I am absolutely good with that. And I think about that, how I treat my wife, how I treat my children, how I live in my community, how I take the assignment of God. What is God's purpose in this universe? And for all of you, it's different. No matter what age you are, how do we, how do we live this life? However long it is. And we don't get to decide that. And honestly, if we did decide that, we'd probably mess it up. But we don't get to decide that. What we get to decide is how do we live today? So about two and a half years ago, I started on a journey of deconstructing David's life to see what was it. Here's the question for our moments together. What was it about David's life that at the end of his life, it could be said he completed God's purpose in his generation. Because whatever those things are, I think as Christ followers, we want those things in our life. Now, those of you that are students of the Scriptures know that a lot of the Scriptures deal with David. Entire books of the Bible, chapters of the Bible, the Psalms, the New Testament... A lot of stuff. I can't cover all that stuff. So I began to look through the life of David, and I began to look at what, what were some general characteristics about his life. I began to think about those. And I don't think my list is exhaustive, and I think those of you who may you know, study the Scriptures, you may come up with a better list. But I just want to share a few of the things on my list. And I share this morning as a, as a fellow pilgrim on a journey. 
And I find that as we journey together, we learn together, we discover together. And so early, early in David's life, the first observation I make about his life is he lived what I'll call the practiced life. Some would call it the disciplined life. And I think, I think that's an appropriate word, but usually when you say the word discipline, it's not really, it's usually not in a good context. If your parent says, come here, I'm going to discipline you, usually don't go say, all right, awesome. I was hoping that would happen today. But David lived the practiced life. He had a set of practices. He would get up early in the morning. He was a little shepherd, shepherd boy. And he would pick a bunch of rocks, and he would take his sling, and he'd walk out, and he'd set, uh, you know, he'd set up like a fence post. And then on the fence post, he'd put you know, some clay pots, and then he'd walk back, and, and he'd take his rocks, and he'd swing it around, and he'd miss. He'd swing it around, and he'd miss. Sometimes he'd miss every time. And then the next day, he got up and he'd do it again. And then the next day, he got up and do it again. Eventually, he would hit one out of five. And then he would hit two or three. And then he would hit four. And every day, he did this practice. This is what he did. A routine, a rhythm, a cadence. And then the scriptures record that when a lion came, he did what he did all the time. He just grabbed a sling and he killed it. And when a bear came, he did what he did every day. He grabbed a sling and he killed it. He didn't think, oh, man, I got to go figure out some lion-killing techniques. He just did what he always did. He practiced. And then when a giant came, he did what he always did. He killed it. The practice life. And I have studied the church fathers church history, and I see that those who, who would have a set of practices seemed to be ready when God chose to use them. Now, I think there's two ways to live your life. You can live your life by default. Whatever happens, happens, and some of us have lived there. I've lived there. When it's just like you get up and say, what's coming next? What's going to happen next? How can I react? How can I respond? Or you can live what I would call the intentional life. Some would say it this way. You can either read the book or you can write the book. <laughs> I'd prefer to write the book. But you write the book through practices. Now, what am I talking about? If, um, if I were to say, take out a piece of paper and write the five practices that every Christian should have in their life. Now, I grew up in church, and I would sing the song, read the Bible and pray every day if you follow me. So those are good practices. But if we made a list, we might have some of the same things, but we might have some of the different, different things on our list, right? So I'm pretty sure many of us would say we need to read the Bible. We need to be people of the book. You know, the Scripture has all this image of, of eat the Word of God, know the Word of God. All Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, or correcting, and training in all righteousness. Do not let the book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night so that you will be careful to do everything and then you will become prosperous and successful. So we know, we see these ideas. We, I probably would say you'd probably have on that list you need to pray. And pray can be commanding prayers. In the name of Jesus, 
They can be meditative prayers. Lord, I sit in your presence. They can be intercessory prayers. God, I stand between you and this brokenness or this hurt or this illness. And I stand and I call out to you. But we would have this, this rhythm, this practice of prayer. We would have probably, because you're here this morning, this practice of gathering with the people of God on a regular basis, whether that's on here on a Sunday or in a life group. But you'd have this rhythm. And you might add other things like Sabbath and silence and solitude. You might, you might add fasting. You might add just the discipline of physical stewardship. But you would, you would have these practices, a list of practices. And I would say that as, at 63, as I go through my life, those practices change a lot. And you never, you never accomplish all of them. They're just practices. Now, I, when I was young, all I ever wanted to do was play football. And I couldn't wait for my first opportunity to play football. So I showed up at what? Practice. But I just thought I was going to play football. So I show up, and the coach says, all right, everybody, welcome to football. Now run a couple laps. I said, I didn't come here to run a couple laps. I come here to play football. But I'll run a couple laps. Ran a couple laps. All right, everybody, I want you to do 25 push-ups. I didn't come to do 25 push-ups. I came to play football. And this went on for weeks. Hit this plastic tackle dummy. I didn't want to hit a plastic tackle dummy. I wanted to hit a human. Like, I played football because it was controlled violence, and I could stay out of jail. It made more sense to me that way. But what I learned that after weeks of these rhythms and cadences, a game did come, and I was ready to play. You know, I was reading a book recently by uh, somebody, Dallas Willard, and he said that we, we overestimate what we can accomplish through trying, and we underestimate what we can accomplish through training. We, we think that it's really noble to try stuff, and, and in some ways it is. But if I were to say, okay, this morning I, you know, I got this word from the Lord that all of us are going to run a marathon tomorrow. Who wants to try? <laughs> and the truth is most of us right at that moment would say, there's no way I can run a marathon. But if I said... We're going to run a marathon a year from now, and tomorrow we're going to walk a quarter of a mile together. And then the next day, maybe a little over that. And then we would have this rhythm. We underestimate what we can try. Through. Now, let me put it in our terms. I'm, I've been in church world my whole life. I've preached. Uh, we were talking on the way here. I said, I wonder how many sermons I've preached in my life. A lot. Oftentimes, I get to the end of the service, and I say, you know, whatever, the, whatever the, the premise of the action point. Now, those who will do this, I want you to come forward. And I want you to try to be a better husband. Try to read the Bible more. Try. And you know what my experience is? We overestimate what we can accomplish through trying. Scripture calls it training in godliness. I would call it practices. So the one thing that I observe, I've got to speed this up a bit. It will be here a long time. One thing I observe is David lived the practice life so that he could get at the end of his life and it could be said he accomplished God's purpose in his generation. The second thing, 
David had a right-sized view of God. So we, some of you are familiar with the story. It's the most famous David story. He goes to bring some food to his brothers, finds out there's a big bully giant who's picking on the army of God, and he's intimidating him every day. He said, come on, send somebody to fight. And uh, David comes, and he sees this giant. And we don't have voice inflection in Scripture. And by the way, you don't have voice inflection in email either. Has he ever sent an email, and somebody says, why did you yell at me? Like, I wasn't yelling at you, but you had everything in caps. Oh, I just wanted you to notice that point. <laughs> We read the scripture, we have the same problem. We don't have voice inflection, but we have this verse where David goes up and he sees this giant and he sees the army of God cowering behind him and he says, he says this, and I'm not sure if he said it inquisitively. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine? Who, who would dare come against the army of God? He might have said it that way. Or I tend to think he said it more trash talk, kind of, just like in his face. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine who would dare come before the army of God? And then he grabs a sling and go kills it. I don't know. But here's what I know. David saw a giant, and his God was bigger than the giant. And I'm going to say to you, that if you want to get to the end of your life and it be said that you accomplish God's purpose in your generation, your God must be bigger than whatever giant you face. Your God, your God has to be bigger than that financial challenge. Your God has to be bigger than that terrible diagnosis from the doctor. It has to be bigger from that relational thing that you just can't figure out and you don't know how to navigate through and you don't know if there'll ever be a future in your marriage or your parenting or with your siblings. And your God has to be bigger with whatever giant you face. You see, everything that you face, everything, is temporary. Those of you that are Christ followers are eternal beings. Now, I, I grew up in church, and I knew what it was to have eternal life. And honestly, I thought, I've always thought, that eternal life starts when I die. I go into eternity. But that when you become a Christian, you're a part of what's called, and Jesus used this term, so it's safe to use it, the kingdom of God. And he, he said, welcome to this kingdom. And there's something about this kingdom. It's an eternal kingdom. There's a continuum. I joined the kingdom, and I'm in for eternity. So what does that mean? It means that I walk along in the presence of God, and then at some point, my body stops working, and I continue in the presence of God. It's a continuum. In fact, uh, it's been said that um, those who follow God may, may not even notice when they die for a while until they realize something is very different because they've remained in the presence of God. They've remained in the normal presence of God. And my friend Dick Foth, he says, you know, you, you give your life to Christ and then you go on through life, and then your body falls out, and you continue on. 
But that means everything that I face is temporary. And you can put up with a lot of stuff if you know it's temporary. And I think David looked at a giant and went, a giant, really? A giant? The God of the universe who exhaled and created everything and everybody's nervous about him? I think that, and not in an arrogant way, but if we're going to get to the end of our life, as we face stuff, and we'll all face stuff, and some of you just finished facing stuff, and some of you are in the middle of stuff, and some of you are going to face stuff, God has to be bigger. Third thing, as I work my way through the scriptures, is uh, David, David cared for the soul. Now, again, today, if I was to say, what is the soul? Probably you would come up with different ideas. Philosophers, theologians, psychologists have wrestled with this idea of the soul. But there are some consistencies to it, and that is, it's what nobody knows that's inside of you. It's the invisible. You know, if right now you had an LED readout on your forehead and I knew everything you were thinking... Some of you would, <laughs> some of you would cover your forehead. <laughs> you know? Like, who is this guy? <laughs> Just walks in here and starts telling us these stories. Others would say, "Where are we going to lunch? Where are we going to lunch?" I don't know what's in your mind, but you know. And then, and then there's this weird thing that happens where we have an argument with ourselves. I don't even understand. I wake up in the morning. I know I need to work out, and then an argument begins. Ah, oh, you don't need to work out today. You worked out yesterday. Why do you need to work out? No, I need to work out today. I want to stay consistent. Nah, it's okay to skip. Who's arguing with who? It's both me, right? It's this, this investment. So, but there is this eternal sense about, and some of you know the difference between the spirit and the body because some of you have experienced great illness in your body where your body has not acted the way you wanted it to. And in that moment, you realize, I'm more than a body. There's more to me. I'm actually restricted in a body. And I think when you're really healthy and things are going, you don't think that there's a difference between your physical body and your, your, your eternal soul. You feel like they're the same. And then one, once one breaks, you go, I'm so glad. I'm made up more than that. I'm, I'm so glad that's not it. And so this idea of nurturing the soul... David did this. A couple of reasons I know this. He would bring calm to Saul. Saul was the king. Saul would get agitated. David would come in. The spirit of God was on him. He would play the harp. Saul would calm down. We have the book of Psalms, and I'm a fan of the book of Psalms. In fact, I read several Psalms a day. One of the reasons I read the Psalms is David prayed prayers that I would never pray. I grew up as a, a church kid. My mom you know, she, she was just a sparrow of a woman, but she was, she was tough. And honestly, if I prayed some of the prayers uh, that David prayed, like, God, I don't understand. Why do the wicked prevail and the righteous suffer? What's the matter with you, God? If I prayed that, my mom would just hit me. I mean, there would be no getting around it. There's no getting around it, right? But yet I find as I read the Psalms, there's this nurturing of my, my soul, this, this un, un, unraveling of, of, of a God that intersects with my heart. 
I went on a sabbatical just before I turned 60. And I wanted to take the first couple weekends to kind of reset my life, you know, kind of rethink a little bit. And so I signed up for a sailboat racing course on the Boston Harbor. So the first day, we get in the harbor on these long, thin sailboats, and the wind is blowing. And you can imagine, all of you have seen sailboats, and the wind, when the wind blows, the sail begins to tip, 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 and the boat begins to tip, and you jump up on the edge of the boat. And I'm up on the edge of the boat, and I'm convinced that the first weekend of my sabbatical, I'm going to die. And I'm up on the edge of this boat, the waves are ripping, the wind is ripping, and the instructor must have seen something in my eyes, because he says, Nick, relax. <laughs> relax. He said, Nick, I've sailed these boats for over 30 years. I've never seen anyone tip one over. And my first thought is, that streak's about to break, because this boat's going over. And then he says this to me, the reason this boat will not flip over is because there's a 2,000-pound keel, like a fin, underneath the water. You can't see it. And as the wind blows, the sail will go over, over, and then the wind will blow off the sail, and it'll pop back up. And we never did tip over. But as I sat on the boat that day, I was struck, <laughs> I was struck with this thought. In my life, when the storm comes, do I have weight in the keel? Because it's not a question for us today, will the storm come? We live in a broken and damaged world. Some of you have just come out of a storm. Some of you are steadfast in the middle of a storm. Some of you, I hate to inform you, a storm is coming. That's not in question. What's in question is, how much weight do you have in the keel? How do you put weight in the keel? Some of the things we did today, you know, I would guess many of you, when the worship team began to sing, you began to sing and believe that God was listening, that the God of the universe would look into Enfield, Connecticut, into this mall and listen to you sing. It's a crazy thought, really, but it's true. Now, historically, if we read through the Old Testament, only certain people could go in the presence of God, and they had to be ceremonially clean, or they would be struck dead. In fact, I would guess that as the band began to worship, you didn't think, hmm, am I, am I cleaning up the worship? Is God going to strike me dead? That probably wasn't in any of your thoughts. You just began to worship which is the beauty of the New Testament. <laughs> it's the beauty of the work of Jesus. But there's something about the presence of God that nurtures, that puts weight in the keel. One of it is you, you get joy, not happiness. Happiness is fickle. Happiness is based on good things that happen to you. Joy can reside right next to suffering. Joy can. Because you nurture your soul. And David nurtured his soul. And as you read through the book of Psalms, oh, God, he calls out. And he faced storms all the time. It's critical that we find these rhythms and cadence. And it means being in prayer. It means being in God's presence. It means, and it's different for all of us. This is not a prescriptive moment. These are just an observation of a traveler along faith alongside you for the last 40 years. These are my observations. This is the life of David. A couple quick ones, and we'll wrap it up. 
David, the third thing. So he, he lived the practice life. He did what he always did, so no matter what happened, he was ready. I mean, I can tell you things that came up in my life. I didn't have time to get ready. I had to have practiced. I didn't have time to figure out when I pastored a church in the North End and 9-11 happened in Boston and someone in my church was on the first plane that went into the tower and I had to stand up that Sunday and say, where was God on September 11th? I didn't have time to practice. I had to have already practiced. You face stuff where you don't have time to practice. And then we have to have a God that's bigger than all of our giants. And then we have to nurture our soul. The third, fourth thing is David had this depth of friendship. Um, I told you my job is working with ministers. I have interviewed hundreds and hundreds of men and women who want to be in full-time ministry or in ministry at some level. And oftentimes in that interview, I will ask a question. So what's going to happen when you're tired, you're depressed, you're overwhelmed, and you want to quit? What are you going to do? Because you need to prepare now before that happens. And they'll usually quote me, you know, they'll say, yeah, yeah, I know, I, I will, I'll speak in tongues all day. And I say, well, that's good. I'm, I'm good with that. I'll quote scripture to the enemy. I'll quote scripture to the devil. I say, that's a, that's a good idea. I mean, he knows it already, but you, you can quote him. It's good. And then eventually I'll, I'll say, well, let me tell you what I do. I have friends, a small group of friends who know me well enough that when I face difficult times, they can walk with me. David had Jonathan. David had this deep relationship with Jonathan. They would, they would live for Jonathan. Let me tell you a couple things I've learned about people. Some of you have walked with Jesus for a long time. Here's what I know about your life. Some of the most critical moments in your life, it's been people who have known you that have spoken in your life that have changed the trajectory of your life. If you ask me, Nick, see, because we think that, that you know, life, you know, time is... You know, time is made up of minutes, but lifetime is made up of moments. If I would say, what's your name? Sharon. Sharon, tell me about your life. Sharon would probably begin to tell me about a significant moment that something happened, another significant moment that somebody came in her life and spoke into her life, another moment that changed her. We're made of these moments, and oftentimes it's people that we trust. Sometimes it's family. Sometimes it's, you know, I grew up in church, and I remember as an 18-year-old, I was going to go to college. I had a football scholarship, a new car, a good-looking girlfriend, and I, my relationship with Jesus was, was not good. And there was a woman in my church who, some of you, may, some of you had this, maybe had this experience. She would teach my Sunday school class, and then when I would get older, she would move to that Sunday school class. And then she, would, she like was a spiritual formation person in my life. I called her Aunt Connie. Everybody in my church was aunt and uncle. We didn't do brother and sister. They weren't related. They were just called aunt and uncle. And I remember at 18, she came up to me, and she, again, was a tiny woman, and, and she put her finger in my chest, and she says, Nick, you're fooling everybody except me and God, and you need to get your life together. Now, she was the only person that had the weight to say that in my life. A stranger would have come up to me and said that. I'd have said, you don't know what you're talking about. But my Aunt Connie knew what she was talking about. And I trusted her. And the trajectory of my life changed in that moment because of friends. It's why we gather. There are people in this room that have gone through what you've gone through. There are people in this room that are watching your life to see how you're going to go through what you're going through. That's why we're together. There's a, there's a, a, a story, one of the greatest moments in, 
in American history is when Martin Luther King Jr. gave his famous I Have a Dream speech. Most of us are aware of it. And if you, if you watch the, the speech, you know, hundreds of thousands of people, he stands there and he, and he starts his speech and he's going through it, and it's really going nowhere. Literally the first 15 minutes, it's going nowhere. Before he spoke, there was a gospel singer named Michaela Jackson who always sang before Martin Luther King spoke. And she finished her song. He went to the podium, and she went behind him, about one row behind him. And he's going through his speech, and it's just kind of going. And then all of a sudden, and, and if you watch it on YouTube, you can actually see this moment, but you can hardly hear, but there's a great article in the New York Times that tells this story. All of a sudden, she screams, Martin, tell him the dream. And he takes and he moves his notes to the side of the podium. And he looks up and he says, I have a dream. Now, what would have happened if someone in the third row that didn't know him said, this is such a boring speech, can you come up with something better? He wouldn't have responded. But he knew that voice. And that voice was a trusted voice that knew him. And when she said, Martin, tell him the dream, he said, whoa. And the trajectory of American history changed in that moment. We need men and women in our life that know us and can speak into, not a lot. Maybe it's a Sunday school teacher who's known you for a long time. Here's how I define a friend. They rejoice when you rejoice, and they weep when you weep. Have you ever been really broken about something and you go to someone and say, man, my heart is broken. I don't know how to go forward. And they respond, what's the matter with you? Get over it. Everybody goes through that. That's not what you want to hear. You want someone to mourn when you mourn. Have you ever been so excited about an accomplishment that you go and say, you guys can't believe what happened. Can I tell you what happened? They say, ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. That happened to me 10 times. You don't want that. You want people to rejoice when you rejoice and weep when you weep. And it, it takes an intentionality. I was challenged, Gene and I were challenged about four or five years ago from a mentor of mine. And he says, he said, you know, you need three or four people that when everybody else is gone, they're going to be standing beside your grave. And that really rattled me. Because if you were to ask me, you know, one of the most... Um, one of the most abused language, words in the English language is friend. Have you ever started a sentence like this? Yeah, yeah, I got a friend. What's his name? <laughs> right? But the depth of friendship, people that walk in, it's why David and Jonathan Pitcher is so amazing. But I think if you're going to get the end of your life and it be said about you that you completed God's purpose in your generation, then you're going to have to have people that journey with you, friends that know you. And it happens in this context. It's why we do church. It's why we nurture spiritual community. Let me share one last one. David was a scoundrel. <laughs> he did a lot of really bad things, like really bad. You're thinking, I thought you'd never get to that part, Nick. He didn't get it right all the time. He definitely did not. In fact, one day he should have been off to war. And some would say, you know, he was just in his kingship. Kind of, you know, he had it all, he had a lot. But I think he was getting older. And he couldn't hang with uh, the warriors like he used to. 
And he was questioning his identity and his value and his worth. And he's up on this balcony and he sees a woman taking a bath and he has her brought to him. They have an adulterous relationship. She gets pregnant and he orchestrates the murder of her husband. That is a lot of terrible things lined up in just a couple sentences, right? That is bad. You know, yet when the Bible talks about David's life, it talks about he was after God's own heart, that he always followed God's purposes. How can that be? How can both of those things exist together? Well, you and I know because we fail. We fail. It's been said that the the definition of character is not so much that you do wrong, is it that you do right after you've done wrong. David had a heart that pursued God. So we have one picture of his life, and it's Psalm 51, and it's what David prayed when Nathan came to him, the prophet, and he said, you know, people with power, they take advantage of people who don't have power. And David is enraged. And he said, no, bring them to me. I'll deal with them. And Nathan puts his finger on David's chest. And he says, I'm talking about you. And he calls him out. And David is crushed. And then he writes this prayer, Psalm 51. Let me just read a couple things, and then I'm going to pray and turn it back to your pastor. Listen to this. Now, imagine that moment of disgrace and shame in so many ways. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Take my transgressions, wash away my iniquity, and cleanse me from sin. He goes on. I love this. I read this often. Cleanse me, and I'll be clean. Can, can you hear the tenor of his voice? Wash me, and I'll be made whiter than snow. And then he says this beautiful phrase, create in me a clean heart, O God. But then the next sentence, do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Why was that so significant? Some of you know the story that the Spirit of God was on Saul, and he ruled and reigned. The Spirit of God came off Saul, and he was destroyed. I think, I think David was praying, God, don't take your spirit from me like you took it from Saul. I can't bear up under it. Grant me a willing spirit and sustain me, oh God. It's an, it's an incredible prayer. If you want to get to the end of your life, and it be said that you completed God's purpose in your generation, when you fail, you need to turn to God. And here's, you know, I'll end with this. Here's the difference between David and us. Jesus and the work of the cross. People on David didn't have access to God like David did. You and I, because of the cross, can access the presence of God, the forgiveness of God, the wholeness of God. And as we come, as we journey along in life, and we stumble, and we trip, and we have a rebellious moment, and we turn away, we can come to God freely. And he can do what only he can do, which is forgive. You know, 
I don't know if this is any of your story, but it's, it's my story. I grew up in church. I was a preacher's kid. I have no knowledge of not knowing God. People say, when did you get saved? I said, I have no idea. I just prayed every week when they gave an altar call, stay safe. I didn't want to risk it. It sounded really bad. Like if you didn't pray that prayer, things were going to end really badly. But I always knew God. Always. Now I had to make a decision to be a follower of Jesus and a discipler or discipled and disciple other people. But you know what that means for me? That means every single act of rebellion, every single sin has happened with the knowledge of a living God. I used to think it'd be so cool to say, I had this terrible life. I was in the gutter. I was homeless. I was a drug addict. And then I got saved. And now my life is perfect. I thought that would be so cool. And that is an amazing story. And that's some of your story. And I don't make light of it. I'm just saying my evil heart would think, ah, I wish I could have that story. But you know the result of that? I love communion. And I, when I hold up that little cup and I hold up that piece of bread and I eat that bread to remember the work of Christ and I drink that cup to remember the forgiveness of Jesus, I access something David could never access. I can be made whole. I can be forgiven. My history does not hold my future. You know what? You know when Jesus, I was just looking at this this morning. You know when Jesus, you know, holds up the bread and the cup? He said, do this in remembrance of me. Why did he say that? Because our memories are so fickle. You know what? We tend to remember the things we're supposed to forget and forget the things we're supposed to remember. Isn't it true? Ah, I messed up 10 times. You were supposed to forget that. I already forgave that. We forget what we're supposed to remember. And we remember what we're supposed to forget. And every time you hold that cup and you hold that bread, it's like pushing a reset button and remembering again. There's this great encounter where Jesus faces Peter. And, and he said, you ever wonder why? He said, hey, Peter, do you love me? Yeah, yeah, I love you. No, Peter, do you love me? Yeah, I, I, I just said I loved you. No, Peter, do you love me? Lord, can't you hear? I love you. Why did he say it three times? I don't know for sure. But it could be three times he denied Jesus, and Jesus wanted to push the reset in his brain. He said, no, 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 you don't deny. You're not a denier of me. You're a lover of me. That's the work of Jesus for all of us. Let me pray for you. God, thank you for these men and women. Thank you for this church. Thank you for the good work that you're doing among us. And God, I pray. I know that each person here, there might only be one thing that they walk away. Man, I need to, I need to tighten up my practices. I need to make sure God is bigger than what I'm facing today. I need to make sure I'm, I'm putting some weight in the keel so that when the storm comes, joy can reside right next to suffering. I need to be really careful that, I, that there's people that know me and I love, that are walking with me, one or two people that can speak into my life, whatever season of my life is in. And God, when I fail, when I fail, I can come to the cross and find forgiveness and wholeness. And if we do those things over our life, it can be said about us, we completed God's purpose in our generation.
God, thank you. Thank you that you walk with us, you work with us. And those who may be distant from you and may just, just be checking out Christianity, may they see a God who was a reckless lover who would come after them and would love them when they didn't deserve it and hold them even when they fail as we journey through the continuum of the kingdom of God. Pray your blessing on this church. I thank you for Pastor Dave, Lisa. Pray your hand would be on them. Your goodness would reside in their life. And God, as we go forth, we would go forth trusting you because you're trustworthy. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. God bless you all. So good.